This fall, we are working our way through a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament book. It's considered to be wisdom literature. What that means is that um, Ecclesiastes is wanting to impart wisdom to us so that we might uh, successfully know how to go about life in the way that God intends. And Uh, Early in this book, we met, uh, we were introduced to the preacher. That's how he's introduced to us. And the preacher has basically uh, been inviting us into his thought life. And these are no ordinary thoughts. These thoughts uh, have to do with the big questions of life. He's wrestling with very heavy and weighty stuff. And you you know that um, if you've been here for the sermons in the series so far. Uh, Specifically, what the preacher has set out to do is to find that thing, that one thing that will help unlock the meaning of all things to him. And he keeps coming up empty in this pursuit, in this search for the key that will unlock it all, that will bring him complete satisfaction, that will give him that view of all things, that he's able to connect all the dots and see how it all fits together. He keeps coming up empty. And in order, as a way to capture how he keeps coming up empty, he regularly uses this phrase, vanity of vanities, life is vanity. And what we've said is that the best translation for that word vanity is vapor, meaning that it's as though you see um, vapor in the air and you reach out to grab it or to touch it. And before you even have the opportunity to do so, it has dissipated or disappeared. And we, have, we encounter life in the same way. As we try to find maybe that thing that will uh, provide deepest meaning to our lives, um, we keep coming up empty. Now last week, um, we got into chapter four of Ecclesiastes, so we're going to pick up there. And this morning, the preacher is going to help us think about the value of human community. It's gonna help us think about the value of living life with others. So I'm going to pick up with verse 4 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 16. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. 
Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, and along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Father, we trust because your word tells us that you are here in our midst by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you would come near to us regardless of where we find ourselves in this particular moment. Some of us are believing your word, some of us are disbelieving your word, and others of us aren't even sure what we believe as it relates to your word this morning. But our prayer is that you would come and find us, Holy Spirit, that you would open the word of life to us, that you would lodge your word into our hearts that we might actually be changed. We pray, Jesus, that you would do this for your glory and our good. Amen. So, About six weeks ago, probably, I stood up here, and in the context of a sermon, I told you that the Phillies were not going to win the World Series. (laughs) I said it painfully. Now, this was after they had won the first series of the playoffs, um, and we were kind of riding a high if you're a Phillies fan. Um, But I I told you, I I was talking about how that was an incredible joy to experience the Phillies winning that first round of the series. But I went on to say, let's be realistic, the Phillies are not going to win the World Series. I'm not up here to tell you I told you so, because I woke up with pain in my heart because they lost last night. Um, But I told you so. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But what I want to reflect on at the beginning of this sermon is just kind of the ride that the Phillies went on the last six months and what I noticed. Um, And one thing I noticed is that particularly online, um, but even in interactions with others. I'll I'll use this example in particular. Last Saturday, um, I was at a corn maze in Lancaster. So this was the day after the Phillies won dramatically the first game of the World Series. And a majority, probably, of the people, uh, thousands of people, I might be exaggerating, maybe not quite a majority, but probably at least half of these thousands of people were all wearing red Phillies gear, including myself. And it was a cool dynamic because you, you, you would um, comment on the person who walks by you wearing Phillies gear, and you would get into a brief conversation. I saw this with others about the dramatic win last night. What I'm getting at here is that what happened over the last six weeks, as odd as it may sound, and if you're not into sports or the Phillies in particular, this sounds so bizarre to you, but what I noticed was how this ride of the Phillies created some level of community in the Delaware Valley. I listen to sports talk radio, so I heard it there. I read articles about the Phillies. I saw it on social media. Even seeing fans on social media thanking other fans who they met at games, giving high fives to people that they didn't even know, even using the word community to describe all of this. And what this points out to me is the need for community. Like, this wouldn't happen, these dynamics would not take place if it weren't for the reality that deep down inside, we know that we were made for something bigger than ourselves. And one of those things that we were made for is community, life with 
others. If we're honest, regardless of of how the burdens of life are playing out in your life right now, none of us want to do life alone. None of us. Deep down inside, we want to walk with others, and we want others to walk with us. And the scripture would affirm this. God's story affirms this, that we were actually made for community. So it should come as no surprise to us to actually see this playing out in practical ways in the world around us. But what I also can't help but to think about in light of the community um, experience of community that the Phillies created over the past six weeks is that it's very selective. It's a way to participate in community in which we don't have to really immerse ourselves. We don't have to give much. Um, This kind of community is just simply built on pure joy and devastation when they lose. But guess what? All those fans who were interacting in magical ways over the past six weeks, for the most part, they might never talk to each other again. And what this highlights is this tension that we were made for community, but at the same time, we live such individualistic lives. We want community, but we don't want to give ourselves to community. That's basically what the preacher's inviting us into this morning. He wants us to reflect on that, to think about it. And so let's follow his logic, his thoughts here, as he um, takes us on this exploration of community. It's probably helpful to go back to the end of last week's passage, because it's actually the beginning of the chapter that we picked up in this morning. In verses 1 through 3, the preacher describes a pretty bleak um, situation. He talks about how he saw all the oppressions under the sun. And he talks about um, the tears of the oppressed and how they were alone with no one to comfort them in the midst of their pain and sorrow. He talks about how on the side of the oppressors was power. And he says this very dark thing uh, in verse 2. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now before we jump all over the preacher and call him impious and say that that's not godly, how could this even be in the Bible? We've thought the same things. I, I've, I've thought the same things. Hopefully you have, or maybe it's just me. But we've thought the same things. There have been moments in your life where you've thought, in the midst of intense pain, oh my goodness, it would have just been better had I never been born. So I wouldn't have had to experience this. Or sometimes maybe you're just kind of big picturing it and considering the oppressions like the preacher in the world, and you think to yourself, man, it would have just been better if people never existed. That's what the the preacher's doing here. The preacher is not, this isn't a a statement that should be taken as um, what is true, that people actually shouldn't exist, that um, we should actually believe this and live in light of it. The preacher is simply inviting us into his honest reflections about the big things of life. And as we consider what he was talking about in verses 1 through 3, as we pick up in here, here in verse 4, 
It's actually the theme of being alone. Because did you catch it when I read that verse about how the oppressed um, are, are in their tears and there's no one to comfort them? What the preacher is ultimately describing is a scenario, a picture in which human beings are dealing with the burdens of life alone, without help, without community. So in verse 4, he picks up and he says, Then I saw all that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, I have a question here. The preacher says, Then I saw that all toil and all um, skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Really? All? Like, I'm pretty sure that there have been times in my life where I've produced something, I've done work, and it wasn't rooted in some kind of rivalry with another person. It wasn't rooted in competition. That's not what was going on. Here's the thing. The wisdom literature um, often makes generalizations. This is a generalization. The preacher's not actually saying that it's absolutely the case that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, but what he's basically saying is that much of it does. Much of it does. This is just a true um, diagnosis, a true analysis that he's making of the world, that so much of our work So much of our skill in work is rooted in rivalry and competition with others. Now, I've been saying this throughout the series. When you hear that word work, don't necessarily think nine-to-five job kind of work. It certainly would include that. But when the preacher's using the word work, what he's getting at is the whole of our activities, all of our efforts in life all of what we produce. So yes, it's referring, it can refer specifically to our vocation, but it's broader than that. Just having to do with everything that we accomplish, everything that we produce, our output, generally speaking, in life, he's saying so much of it is really rooted in rivalry and competition with others. What drives this? We want to set ourselves apart. And so, if rivalry is the motivation for work, what's the point? What's the point? If the preacher has repeatedly already said that life is vapor, well, this way of relating to our work in which we're simply going about the business of our work in order to set ourselves apart from others, in order to be better than others, well, that definitely has to be vapor. And that's the preacher's conclusion here. If work in general is vapor, because prior to this, um, early on in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's he's helped us kind of reflect on how just in general work can be vapor from the standpoint of, you know, we, we, we work for what we accumulate, but then after we pass away, for example, how can we be sure that the person who follows us will actually be good stewards of Um, what we've accumulated. So that's one example of where the preacher reflecting on work in general um, said that it's vapor in the sense that work doesn't hold that key that will deliver ultimate satisfaction. Work doesn't hold that key 
that unlocks the meaning of it all. If that's the case, then definitely approaching our work in this way, out of rivalry and competition, that most certainly is vapor. The reason being that work that isolates us is dehumanizing. We weren't meant to go about our activities in this way. It's dehumanizing to us, but it's also dehumanizing to others around us. We weren't made for this. Our work is actually meant to create community, not the opposite, and actually be a hindrance to community. So what does this teach us about ourselves? The fact that we approach so much of our activities in life out of a rivalry and competition, out of a desire to set ourselves apart from others in order to validate our existence, basically, what does it tell us about ourselves? It tells us that there is self-centeredness in the human heart. There is self-centeredness in the human heart. We try to be better than others. We turn so much of life into a competition. Why? Because this self-centeredness is ultimately driven by insecurity. So I, I think it's really telling us two things. We, answering that question of what does this teach us about ourselves, it teaches us that self-centeredness exists in the human heart, but it also ultimately tells us that we are insecure. Why do I say that? Because if we were operating out of a place in life where we felt secure, where we felt content within ourselves, where we felt strong in our inner selves, so to speak, we wouldn't have the need to try to set ourselves apart from others. We wouldn't have the need to try to use others in order to validate our existence. We wouldn't have the need to go about our work and create a rivalry and competition. But the fact that we do shows that there's self-centeredness in the human heart and that that self-centeredness is rooted in a deep underlying insecurity. The preacher, once again, is inviting us to be realistic and honest about the reality, the truth, that there is something wrong with us. There's something wrong with the human heart, namely self-centeredness rooted in insecurity. Like, have you ever thought um, to yourself as you, let's start big picture, as you consider wars or global conflicts, have you ever found yourself thinking something like, my goodness, it's 2022. How is this still a thing in the world? Like, why can't people just leave other people alone? Like, why is there this need to go to war? Why is there this need to battle one another? Like, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, at least for me, if you really reflect on it deeply. Like, and, and I think that in our world, we just become so used to it, but then at the same time, we turn around and talk about people as if they are only good. Well, if people are only good, how, how do we account for the fact that there are wars and global conflicts? And then we can, we can even get more specific than that in the course of our lives and conflict that makes its way into our lives. Like, have you ever, especially, not, maybe not so much when you're considering your own life, but have you ever looked at a conflict like outside of yourself going on with 
like another person, another couple, family, whatever it might be, and thought to yourself, like, why can't they just stop? Why all the drama? Give it up. It's because there's something wrong with humans. There's self-centeredness in the human heart, rooted in insecurity. This is why this continues to happen time and time again. And it's why we can't just simply say, why doesn't it just stop? Just stop the war. Just stop uh, arguing and bickering. It's not as easy about that. There's something wrong with the human heart, and some remedy has to be applied. So it's hard. Like, remember our starting point here. Community is valuable. We need community. We were made for community. But because of the realities of the human heart, there's this tension. It's really hard for us to live in community well. Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Wow, the preacher just went over the edge, right? He just, like, we were trekking with him. It was dark and bleak, but, uh, you know, can't do this. He just went over the edge. What, what is he talking about here? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So this is the opposite end of the spectrum of what he was just describing. And that is a person who um, frantically, we'll use that word, frantically and relentlessly um, is active in their lives, doing, 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 in order to try to set themselves apart because in their mind there's this competition, there's this rivalry. Well, this person, this fool, is the opposite end of the spectrum. This is a person who refuses to work, who refuses um, the activities of life. So it's describing ultimately laziness and sloth. He eats his own flesh. Now, the preacher is using highly evocative language to make a point. This is another thing about wisdom literature. Um, he's describing self-cannibalism, right? A person who like, eats his own flesh. That's weird. That's crazy. What he's describing is that the result of this laziness of the fool basically is that he becomes a cannibal of himself. He eats away at himself because this way of living was not intended by God either. So, you know, here are the two stream, extremes. A life of frantic working and activity in order to set yourself apart from others so that you can accumulate, accumulate in some kind of competition or rivalry. And on the other end of the spectrum is laziness. Kind of this mindset, well, all right, if what the preacher describes over here, the frantic pursuit of um, activity, if that is va vanity, if that's vapor, well, then I just won't do anything but not so fast, because the preacher is basically saying that approach to life is also vapor. They will kill themselves by starvation, essentially. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. All right, so if work is what's described in verse 4, then rest is better than striving after the wind. So wait, maybe actually the fool is right to begin with. Maybe the fool over here has the right approach. So perhaps it really is just better to not work at all, to not give ourselves to the activities of life. 
But what's being referred to here, specifically that word quietness, it refers to a reasonable approach to life where one doesn't get caught up in rivalries. Work is good, but rest too is good. This is a life-work balance, maybe, you would want to say, is what the preacher's capturing here. It's, yes, give yourself to activity. Give yourself to work. That's good. God intends for that. But don't do it in such a way that you turn it into a competition and a rivalry. Rather, take opportunities to rest, to quiet yourself, to reflect Because that is one way to go about combating this frantic approach to activity and work. So, could it be that maybe one is actually better than two? It's better to just kind of be quiet, be restful, do your own thing, not get involved with other people, just go about your own business. Remember, the preacher's inviting us into his thought life, and we haven't arrived at the conclusion yet. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? There's now a shift in the focus of the preacher. The the preacher is using the example of a person who works for themselves, by themselves. And the description here is it's a person with no one else to serve. They're without a second. Now, don't think exclusively marriage because that's not what the preacher has in mind. His application is much broader than that. This person works hard, but they're never satisfied. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. And so he never asks the question, like, whom am I actually doing this for? Why am I doing this? Verse 9 shifts to reflect on the value of community. This is an important shift in the passage. As context for this verse, I want to take us back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The scene is the Garden of Eden. It's God focusing on that day in which God created humanity in his own image. And there's this statement that man is not meant to be alone. And in that verse, specifically, the application there is to marriage, but there's also a broader application that applies to humanity as a whole. Here in this verse, in verse 9, the uh, application is specifically to community as a broader whole, but can be applied to marriage. In other words, what I'm saying here is don't read this these verses here with simply the context of marriage or the example of marriage in your mind. It's speaking about human community in general. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now, the reason that I make the comments about marriage is because 
I'm sure that you probably have been to a wedding in which you heard this verse read. And that's not bad. I've done weddings in which I've actually preached the homily on this verse. As I said, it can broadly apply to marriage. It's just in context, not specifically about marriage, because it's about human community in general as a whole. And what the preacher is saying here is that there, is a, there are practical advantages to companionship. There are practical advantages to companionship. Because it provides a way to share gains. There's a place for mutual assistance, coming alongside of each other to provide help. And what's interesting here is that the preacher says um, in verse, uh, I don't have the specific verse in my notes, but he talks about how this is actually gain. And it's interesting to me because if you've been tracking in the series so far, any time the preacher has talked about this word or used this word gain, it's to say that whatever it is we're trying to pursue in life as the key that unlocks it all, that provides ultimate satisfaction, you're not going to find it. You're not going to get that gain. You're not going to get that leverage over life in which you can be completely secure and free from the worries of life, essentially. But here... He's using gain positively. This is actually a rare advantage in life. What's the rare advantage? Living life in community. Genuine companionship with others. In other words, working for self equals vapor. Working for others equals gain. One commentator on this verse said, work has meaning primarily as a way of expressing love, not as a means of accumulating individual wealth. There's nothing necessarily wrong with accumulating individual wealth, but if it is separated out from the love of others, then we have a problem. Work has meaning primarily as a way of expressing love. Now, again, don't think only in terms of a nine-to-five job, what you do for a vocation. You, you can think about that. It does apply. But we're, we're talking about the work of our lives, the activities of our lives that we give ourselves to. Work has meaning primarily as a way of expressing love. The issue that the preacher is detecting is this, a self-centered way of going about our activities in our work in life rooted in an insecurity that turns everything into a competition and a rivalry, that makes its um, primary ambition the accumulation of things so that we can feel more and more protected and find our worth and value in the things that we have. This, brothers and sisters, is vapor. It's meaningless. It's ultimately so because we were not made for it. We were made for others. Starting with verse 10, the preacher now gives his reasoning for why this is true. And these verses here, 10 through 12, make me think of life as a journey. The reason is, is that 
All the examples come from the risk of traveling by foot in the ancient Near East. And the point here made by the preacher is that companions are good for the journey of life. Why? Ready for this? It's profound. Life is hard. It's not that profound. It is profound, but it's simple. Why? Why are companions good for the journey of life? Because life is just hard. The burdens of life are too heavy. Of course, the big burdens, you know, the tragedies that we absorb in our lives, but even the small burdens of life that pop up regularly throughout the week, it is just hard. Life under the sun, life in a fallen world is frustrating. It can be devastating. It can be tragic. And companions, as we walk through that journey, are good and necessary. So the preacher provides three um, examples of this. Verse 10, what sometimes happens to us in this life that can be hard. We sometimes fall down along the way. Has that ever happened to you? Fallen down on the way through life? Maybe literally, but figuratively. We all have fallen down in the journey of life. And in the ancient Near East in particular, this could have been perilous and even life-threatening because it makes you vulnerable. Verse 11, what is the reasoning? Sometimes the world feels dark and cold along the way. And so in the ancient Near East, travelers would often sleep close together for warmth. Finally, verse 12, sometimes others threaten and harm you along the way. Roads um, outside cities and towns were often dangerous because they were isolated and made the traveler vulnerable to attacks. Point is this, there is an advantage to teaming up, to teaming up in life, to coming alongside others and allowing others to come alongside you because life is hard. Two are better than one. Three is even better, (laughs) preacher basically says. What the preacher has in mind here are companions who travel the road of life together. So as you, well, you're not standing, I'm standing, but as you sit where you are in this moment, like this particular moment of time, but also just this season of life, you can't see the pitfalls, the curves, the valleys, the peaks that you will face ahead. But as you wind your way through life, you will encounter these. You know this to be the case because you have encountered these and you most likely are encountering these. And brothers and sisters, we need companions. We need community. We need fellow travelers as we travel the road of life. And the passage ends with this, that section ends with this statement, a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one, but three are even better, the passage is saying. Multiple braided cords are stronger than cords of a single braid. So three intertwined strands is the strongest kind of rope. 
Two strands alone are limited since they, can't, um, since they can unravel under pressure. But the third strand adds strength. But here's something for us to think about. The fact that community is better than isolation actually intensifies the problem. Why is that? Well, we'll get there in a moment. But I, I want to, but before we get there, I want to wrap up the, the end of the preacher's reflections here, the last couple verses. He, he kind of tells this parable um, about a king and a poor, wise youth. And the point of the parable is this that in the end, even though neither would necessarily be remembered, because that takes us back to our chapter one reflections about. Um, the remembrance of people, and we need to have this realistic um, approach to life where, you know, we, we might be in our own way trying to make ourselves famous and known, but the reality is, is that 20, 30, 40, 50, further we get away, we're not going to be remembered. But that's not ultimately the main uh, message of these verses. It's this, that the, the, the poor, wise youth was actually wiser than the king. Why? Because he listened to advice. A wise leader takes advice. In other words, a wise leader recognizes that he or she needs others. And so that's how the preacher brings his reflections in this section to a close. Martin Luther, who was a reformer during the Reformation, summarized this passage well by saying this, the meaning is, it is better to be in association with others and to enjoy things in common than to be a solitary miser who only cares about himself and grabs for himself alone. In society, there is mutual help, common work, and a common solace. I love how he describes that. It's better to be in association with others and to enjoy things in common than to be a, basically a miserable, solitary person who only cares about yourself and wants to just grab things for yourself. How do we not live like that? As the isolated person who's just grabbing things for ourselves? Well, this takes us back to what I started to get into a few moments ago about the tension and conflict, that we are made for community, Deep down inside, we desire community, but self-centeredness resides in the human heart and is a significant barrier to our ability to participate in community. But we need others, as the preacher's saying. We can't go it alone. We can't do life alone. So how do we, in light of our self-centeredness, how do we invite others into our lives and how are we willing to enter into the lives of others when the default mode of the human heart is that we make a competition out of anything? Well, we need the burden of sin, the curse of sin, and a, a, a pretty... I mean, there's lots of accurate definitions of sin, but helpful for this context right now, uh, a good working definition of sin is self-centeredness. We need the curse of sin 
to be lifted from us. How does that happen? It happens as we are welcomed and invited into the community life of the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a mind-blowing, beautiful reality that the God of the Bible exists as community. God enjoys a social life within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a remarkable thing, and humans are made in the image of this God, and therefore we are inevitably made for social life, for community life. The way that the curse of sin gets lifted as we look to Jesus on the cross and recognize that he endured the curse of sin for us as we place our faith in him. And as we do that, what happens is we are reconciled to God. We are welcomed again by God. And within the life of the Trinity, what do we find? We find love. We find security. This is the only thing that can solve the self-centeredness that exists in the human heart. Because without giving ourselves, without experiencing this welcome, uh, this love of the triune God, we are going to continue to make everything with others into a rivalry and a competition because we're going to have the need in our insecurity to validate ourselves, to show ourselves as better. And it creeps into the community life of the church in the most subtle of ways. You might be thinking to yourself, I don't make things into a competition or rivalry with others. Yes, you do. And the remedy for it is to more deeply experience the love of God demonstrated us to us through Jesus. That when we were undeserving, that when we didn't deserve to be welcomed in, God welcomed us in anyway. And through faith in this deliverance that has been provided for us by Jesus, we are set free. We're set free. We don't have to give in to these cravings of our heart any longer to uh, enter into rivalry and competitions with others. Why? Because our insecurity is gradually being healed by the love of Jesus. In Jesus, you are loved. You are accepted. You are validated. You are secure. And so, in the context of God's covenant community, we can now look at each other through that lens. You see, it, it's not just true of yourself. It, it's that person that you feel bitterness toward. That, that person that you are in conflict with. That person, too, assuming that they have come to Jesus, they are loved and validated and made secure in Jesus and so we are called to share in that bond together, to work through the hardships of life, to work through the burdens of life, experiencing the full freedom of the good news of Jesus that allows us to do this. Let me pray. Jesus, we praise you for lifting the burden of sin. We thank you 
that you went on a journey ahead of us. You experienced yourself the pitfalls, the curves, the coldness and harms of this world on our behalf. We pray that you would give us an increasing experience of your love and the security that comes from us. Help us to love one another in new ways because of this security. I pray that you would empower us, that you would equip us, that you would call us to be a people who does not live in isolation from others, but I pray that we would even be a people who seek out those who are marginalized from community so that they might experience what they were made for. Do this in our midst, Jesus. Help us. We need your help. Amen. If you have children who are downstairs in City Church Kids, you can um, go and get them and bring them into the community life up here. Let's uh, stand together as we sing this song of response.